For almost 50 years, Juan Gabriel was the biggest pop star in Mexico. He was as famous for his dazzling costumes and soulful ballads as he was for his rags-to-riches success story, one that endeared him to millions of fans worldwide. Gabriel had been performing since his early teens, first on the streets of Mexico while selling tortillas, and eventually in packed stadiums throughout North America. He became one of the wealthiest artists in Mexican history. But in his 60s, Gabriel's health declined. He suffered from diabetes and cardiovascular issues, illnesses that were exacerbated by his rigorous schedule. He often performed multiple shows in a night for weeks at a time. Then, in late 2005, Gabriel took a nasty fall during a performance in Houston, Texas. He sustained a fractured neck, a concussion, and a broken wrist. He was bedridden for eight months, and doctors forbade him from performing. Gabriel made a full physical recovery, but his underlying health issues persisted. On August 28, 2016, he experienced a fatal heart attack at his residence in Santa Monica, California. While his cause of death seems straightforward, shocking clues have come to light suggesting otherwise. Clues that led even his diehard fans to question what they thought they knew about Juan Gabriel. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first of two Cinco de Mayo episodes on Mexican music conspiracies. In today's episode, we'll explore the life and death of Mexican superstar Juan Gabriel. The official story is that Juan Gabriel, or Juanga as he was known, died of a heart attack in 2016 at the age of 66. But some refuse to accept he's dead at all. Conspiracy theorists believe that Gabriel may have faked his own death because of stress, financial insecurity, or even threats on his life. And he's been living a quiet life out of the spotlight ever since. We'll also examine another conspiracy that for almost 30 years, Juan Gabriel led a double life, one that would leave fans wondering if they ever really knew their beloved Wanga. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Juan Gabriel was born Alberto Aguilera Valadez, the youngest of 10 children, to two farmers in Paracuaro, Michoacan, Mexico. His earliest memories from this childhood would shape the course of Gabriel's entire life. The first was losing his father, who reportedly was sent away to a psychiatric institution just a few years after he was born. Little Alberto would eventually adopt his father's first name, Gabriel, as part of his own stage persona. The second memory that made an impression on Gabrielle was being abandoned by his own mother. Unable to care for so many children on her own, she placed Gabrielle in an orphanage when he was four. Speaking of the experience as an adult, Gabrielle told the LA Times, quote, You don't know the word for abandon at that age, but you know what is happening. You know you want to be with your mother and she is not there. By age 10, he developed a rebellious side and had a preternatural gift for running away. Whenever he escaped, he managed to find menial jobs and earn some pocket change. But soon, he devoted his energy to another subject, music. His introduction to the art form came from an unlikely source, a teacher at the orphanage named Juan Contreras. Not only was Contreras virtually deaf, he was ill at ease around children. But he was able to nurture Gabrielle's talents, seeing how fascinated he was by music. Gabrielle was also one of the few kids who didn't make fun of Contreras' deafness. Over time, he seemed to look up to Contreras as the father figure he never had. It's unclear exactly how Gabrielle's gifts presented themselves, but we do know he absorbed all he could from his mentor. Around age 14, he actually left the orphanage to live with Contreras. In fact, he later chose Contreras' first name Juan as the other part of his stage name to honor Contreras. Shortly after moving in with Contreras, Juan Gabriel moved to the city of Juarez to search for his mother. There are very few details about this period of his life, but we know the two reconnected. Problem was, his mother still didn't have the means to support her youngest son. Instead, Gabriel did everything he could to help her. 
During this time, Gabriel sold tortillas and trinkets on the street, singing while he worked. One day, while belting out an original tune, a pair of sisters named Leonor and Beatrice Baruman noticed Gabriel. They decided to take the teenager under their wing. Leonor and Beatrice were active in their local church, and they tried to instill a similar devotion in Juan Gabriel. But while he seemed lukewarm to their religion, Gabriel did embrace the music. The church gave Gabriel his first opportunity to perform for an audience on stage. It was here he received his first lessons in showmanship. Still only 14, Gabriel put his new talents to good use. He sang in seedy bars in Juarez, and he gave his mother nearly every peso he earned. But it certainly wasn't the most wholesome environment. Working at these establishments meant Gabriel performed for criminals. Yet even within this sea of vice and crime, his talent and charisma got him noticed. It's unclear how Gabriel made the leap from performing in local canteens to the small screen, but in 1965, at age 15, Gabriel made his musical debut on the television show Noches Rancheras. He parlayed that exposure, landing a regular gig in a nightclub called El Noa Noa. And by 19, Gabriel was able to relocate to Mexico City, However, his life in the capital got off to a rocky start. Far from home and with almost no money in his pocket, Gabriel slept in bus stations and on park benches. Then, just a few months into his arrival, he was accused of robbery and landed in jail. Details surrounding this alleged crime are scarce. But without a support system or money to pay for a lawyer, Gabriel languished behind bars for a year and a half. Once again, music became his saving grace. Typically, the last thing someone wants to do in prison is get noticed, but Gabriel's guitar skills and distinctive ballads did exactly that. And not just among the inmates. He caught the warden's attention as well. Eventually, he grew such a fondness for Gabriel that he actually helped to secure his release. The warden was also related to one of the most popular Mexican performers of the era, the singer Enriqueta Jimenez. So he arranged for her and Gabriel to meet. The introduction was a seminal moment in both of their lives. Gabriel was in awe. When he met her, he burst into tears. And for Jimenez, the feeling was mutual. She could detect something special about Gabriel and promised to support him in whatever way she could. In this case, she used her considerable power and influence to secure Gabriel a recording contract. One year later, in 1971, the 21-year-old received his first gold record for a single titled No Tango Dinero, or I've Got No Money. Although by this time, he had plenty of dinero. Gabriel had enough to support his mother, who was able to quit her job as a maid. And he bought her a $250,000 house in the United States. When explaining why he purchased such a lavish home for the woman who abandoned him, 
Gabrielle told the LA Times, quote, Mexico is a very mom-centered culture. You'll find stores open on Father's Day, but never on Mother's Day. For us, mothers are very important. I know she did the best she could, given what she knew. Unfortunately, his mother would only live another three years. During that time, she witnessed the meteoric rise of her son's storied musical career, one where he'd become the most beloved and iconoclastic musician in Mexico and sell 100 million records. As his fame and fortune grew, Gabriel's stage shows became more flamboyant. He was known for colorful costumes, sequined capes, and eye makeup. All of which he did in a deeply conservative Catholic country, where such displays were typically considered taboo. But Gabriel's unique image and complete disregard for social convention seemed to make him more endearing to the public. He was such a passionate performer that fans openly wept at his concerts and at times threw themselves on stage. But despite his popularity, Gabriel remained humble, staying true to his roots and grateful for his fans. For years, his record label insisted he record music in English. They wanted him to break into the American market suggesting that he could become the most popular entertainer on the planet. Gabriel never even considered it. In 1999, he told the Times, quote, American music has infiltrated the entire world enough as it is. Mexican music must be defended with vigilance. My thoughts, my feelings, my spirit, they're all in Spanish. Music wasn't the only area where Gabriel held to his roots. In the 1980s, he purchased the orphanage he grew up in. Eventually, he expanded it into a youth center and a music academy with nearly 50 employees. Juan Gabriel funded it all himself. Fans loved Gabriel, who they lovingly called Juanga. But for all the joy and devotion he inspired, Few seem to know the real man behind the act. Gabriel was intensely private, and when he wasn't performing, he was a shut-in who rarely even stepped out for dinner. In reality, he preferred to spend his free time alone, gardening or resting. Gabriel also had four children, but he was never married. In fact, he was never romantically linked to anyone. If Gabriel did have a love life, it was completely hidden from the public. This naturally led to a lot of speculation about his sexual orientation, which Gabriel refused to address. He strictly expressed himself through his art, all the way until his death in 2016. After his passing, Gabriel received public tributes from Barack Obama and Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto. Meanwhile, thousands of fans flooded the streets in Mexico to say goodbye to their beloved Wonga. In the time since, his death has raised more questions than it's answered. There's speculation that Gabriel kept numerous secrets from the public, not only out of fear of judgment, but out of fear of being abandoned once again by the people he loved. Coming up, we'll explore whether Juan Gabriel actually led a secret double life. Wayne Simmons spent 27 years undercover for the CIA. 
When he retired from spy work, he got a big break. Terrorism analyst on Fox News. Then he met Kent Clisby. So I'm a real CIA guy. This is total nonsense. I'm Alex French, and I'm here to figure out who's telling the truth. Was Wayne Simmons a spy, or was he nothing but a con man? Imposters is a Spotify original from Parcast and premieres Monday, May 3rd. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Aside from his rags-to-riches story, Juan Gabriel was probably best known for his flamboyant stage outfits, theatrics, and showmanship. This, on top of his very secret personal life, led some people to characterize him as the Mexican Liberace. And just like Liberace, Juan Gabriel was hounded by rumors, innuendo, and speculation. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one, that Juan Gabriel led a secret double life. In the early 70s, Gabriel's career was just taking off. At the time, he presented a more conservative image than the one he adopted a decade later. He wore monotone suits, bell-bottoms, and large-collared shirts, styles that were ubiquitous. He was also incredibly soft-spoken and reserved when dealing with the press. But as his popularity grew, Gabriel became more animated and ostentatious. He wore dazzling silk shirts and sequined capes. Yet one thing remained the same. He refused to divulge details about his personal life. Of course, extravagance and drama are par for the course when it comes to entertaining. After all, Juan Gabriel was a contemporary of artists like David Bowie and Freddie Mercury. But the thing that set Gabriel apart wasn't so much how he did it, but where. Mexico is a deeply religious country. Even today, over 80% of the country's population identifies as practicing Catholics. Therefore, Mexican ideology is predominantly conservative, particularly in its views on sexual orientation. It's also a country with clearly defined gender roles and behavior. Macho behavior is encouraged and celebrated among men which makes Gabriel's makeup, sequins, and unfailing popularity somewhat of a mystery. Gabriel was also known for his ballads about love and heartbreak, and yet he was never married, which isn't necessarily suspicious. What was suspicious was the fact that he was never romantically linked to anyone. When it came to his personal life, Gabriel never spoke about his sexuality. In fact, he rarely gave interviews about anything, when he did, he only spoke about his music. For decades, Gabriel's love life was a hot topic. But as social media became more prevalent, the accounts of his supposed boyfriends were leaked. A former assistant of Gabriel's claimed he'd once had a relationship with the star. Another alleged ex-boyfriend named Anaton Brees also spoke out. 
Reese even said he and Gabrielle both utilized sex work to make ends meet before Gabrielle's career took off. Gabrielle's final rumored companion, a man named Efrain Martinez, was said to be by the singer's side when he died. The pair had reportedly been living together for nearly two years. During a 2002 interview, Gabrielle was actually asked about his sexual orientation point blank. He responded by saying, quote, You don't ask about what can be seen, a line that has since become famous. By ignoring the rumors and innuendo, Gabrielle was abiding by an unspoken rule, a loophole in Mexican society. When it came to sexual orientation, it simply wasn't discussed. If a man or woman never actually admitted to being gay, they weren't regarded as sinful in the eyes of the public. Therefore, millions of people were willing to either ignore or simply look the other way when it came to their favorite pop star. Perhaps the most unconventional twist came after the singer's death. Media outlets were inundated with stories that Gabrielle actually lived a double life, just not the one everyone expected. During his lifetime, Juan Gabriel was the father of four biological children, in addition to at least one adopted son. There was always conflicting information about how his children were conceived. But according to Gabriel's publicist, his four biological kids were the result of artificial insemination. And their mother was Gabriel's longtime friend, Laura Salas. Salas was also intensely private. Little is known about their relationship, but some believe she met Gabrielle while working for him. What is known is that Gabrielle referred to Salas as, quote, the best friend of my life. While Gabrielle made no effort to conceal his having children, he was otherwise mum on the subject. It's possible that in a deeply Catholic country, Gabrielle was worried how the public would perceive him and his children should he confirm they were born out of wedlock. But it wasn't until after Gabrielle's death that shockwaves really rattled the singer's reputation. It was revealed that Gabrielle had three more biological children, two sons and a daughter, bringing the total to eight. Both took DNA tests to verify their claims. And they also announced that Gabrielle had more children who were sure to come out of the woodwork. For some, this begged the question, why was Juan Gabrielle having kids with so many women? Was he more sexually fluid than he'd let on? Not exactly. As Mexican journalist Elena Reyna revealed, Gabrielle's decision to have children had nothing to do with his sexual orientation. According to Reyna, it was in response to his own difficult upbringing and relationship with his parents. First, it's assumed that all of his children were conceived through artificial insemination, but that hasn't been confirmed. What is confirmed is that both mothers were employees of Gabrielle's and were most likely cooks or house cleaners. And according to both these other women, it was Gabrielle's idea to conceive. Reina claims Gabrielle chose to procreate with these women because they were poor, single, and couldn't afford to raise a family on their own. 
They were also in the same line of work as his mother, which is why he may have felt generous towards them. He wanted these women to enjoy the gift of motherhood without having to struggle financially like his own mother had. Guadalupe Gonzalez, the mother of one child, said of their arrangement, quote, One day he told me, Guadalupe, did you never think of having a child? When we came together, it was a very beautiful thing. He told me, Look, Guadalupe, I didn't just give you a child, I gave you my essence. I have prepared physically, mentally, spiritually to give you this child. You have to take very good care of it. Each of these women has said that Gabriel was a good father to their children. He offered support and guidance, albeit from a distance. But it makes you wonder, could there be even more kids out there that Wanga's fans don't know about? According to Consuelo Rosales, the mother of one of Gabriel's sons, quote, he wanted a daughter, and since I couldn't give it to him, I don't rule out that he may have given it to another woman. He always got what he wanted. Well, in a 2017 TV interview with Telemundo, 42-year-old Claudia Gabriela Aguilera came forward claiming to be that very daughter. And she was armed with a positive DNA test to prove it. For someone who was constantly in the public eye under intense scrutiny, I'm stunned Gabrielle was able to keep these other children a secret. However, knowing Wanga, it was probably part and parcel of his liking to keep his private and public lives separate. So with 10 being the definitive truth, I give this conspiracy theory a five. It's true Gabriel's fans might not have known the whole truth about his private life, but was he intentionally living a double life? I don't think so. I agree, but I think it depends on how you look at it. With how much Gabriel avoided the public eye, it's possible he intended to conceal his children and his lovers. I think the whole thing was strategic, which is why I'm giving this theory a slightly higher rating of 6 out of 10. While this so-called secret life of Juan Gabriel's has fascinated his fans, it also adds fuel to the most persistent theory, one that has plagued the singer's legacy since his untimely passing, that the beloved Wonga is still alive. Coming up, witnesses claim they've spoken to Gabriel since his death. Now back to the story. Even when Juan Gabriel's personal life faced intense scrutiny, he was able to keep a few things close to the vest. But some say he's still keeping a secret, far more astonishing than his former private life. This brings us to our second and final conspiracy theory, that Juan Gabriel faked his own death. According to the official story, Juan Gabriel suffered from diabetes and various heart ailments throughout his 60s. At the same time, he maintained a grueling tour schedule. Unfortunately, it all caught up to him on August 28, 2016, when he died of a heart attack in his California home. Gabriel was said to be cremated. His ashes were returned to another one of his homes in Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua. Meanwhile, news of his death was met with grief and collective disbelief. Millions mourned their beloved Wanga. 
until his former manager, Joaquin Munoz, made a stunning proclamation. In November 2018, during an interview on an entertainment news program, Munoz announced that Gabriel had, in fact, faked his own death. He said that Gabriel planned to return to public life on December 15th of that year. Naturally, this claim was met with skepticism, but some actually held out hope that Munoz was telling the truth. Gabriel's son, Ivan, was not one of those people. He was the oldest of Gabriel's four children with Laura Salas. He was also the one Gabriel named in his will to manage his estate. In response, Ivan shared a copy of his father's death certificate, one that was confirmed as authentic by the family's attorney. But that didn't stop Munoz from doubling down on his claims. When Gabriel failed to materialize on December 15th, Munoz amended his proclamation of Wanga's resurrection. This time he stated that he didn't specifically mean the day of the 15th, but at some point from then on. He adjusted his estimation, claiming it would likely be January 7th, Juan Gabriel's birthday. He also said that the official death certificate was forged. In January 2019, a freelance journalist named Jorge Carabajal reinforced Munoz's claims, saying he'd communicated with the singer via WhatsApp. On Carabajal's YouTube channel, he posted a grainy cell phone video of a man he insisted was Gabriel. Alongside him was a male companion named Umberto. Carabajal also claimed that Gabriel's life was in danger. While the details of that peril were never specified, Carabajal alluded to financial difficulties that made it impossible for Gabriel to resurface. The singer supposedly told Carabajal he needed the government's protection in order to return to society. By April of 2019, the rumors had proliferated to such a degree that Mexican President André Manuel López Obrador had to clear them up. President Obrador stated, There isn't anything to prove these claims. Let's take his fact that he lives through his songs, his talent, for being a good person, extraordinary, free, patriotic. Over the next two months, both Munoz and Carabajal went on the record again, each still insisting that Juan Gabriel was alive. Although they didn't offer any additional evidence to back that up, from then on, the gossip died down, until December 2020, when Munoz appeared on a major Mexican TV network, sparking the rumor mill once more. This time, he read a written message from Gabriel, wishing his fans a Merry Christmas and to take precautions regarding the COVID-19 virus. Naturally, these rumors led millions to wonder why Juan Gabriel would want to fake his death. Perhaps he was just sick of being a celebrity, or maybe he really was in danger. And we do know one thing. When it came to Juan Gabriel, things weren't always what they seemed. Before his death, Gabriel was collaborating on a television biopic about his life called Ostake Te Conosi, Until I Met You. He worked closely with writers to make sure the story was accurate. 
He even composed the score for some episodes. In a truly eerie coincidence, Gabriel passed away the day the final episode aired. I'm not saying he orchestrated his death, but for a showman like Gabriel, this would have been the grandest of grand finales. Although there was one other strange detail that made fans question if he was still alive. Gabriel left his son Ivan, his eldest child, as the executor of his will and estate. But he apparently left his other children out of his will entirely. Perhaps Gabriel was trying to sort out his affairs quickly so he could get out of Dodge. Maybe he just wanted someone responsible for his estate until he could make a safe return. I don't know about that. This seems more like a simple oversight. It wasn't the first time Gabriel had been short-sighted when it came to financial matters. Not to mention, it sparked a nasty inheritance battle, something Wanga certainly would have wanted to avoid if he could. Well, in yet another odd twist, it was revealed that Gabriel owed over $5 million in debt at the time of his passing, most of which was apparently due to contractors who'd either worked on or were in the process of repairing Gabriel's many estates. This wasn't the singer's only experience with debt. In 2005, he was arrested in Mexico for tax evasion and ordered to repay nearly $400,000 to the government. It's possible that there were other debts on the books as well, maybe ones that made Gabriel fear for his life. It's possible, but there's zero evidence to indicate that Gabriel was truly in harm's way. I'm more inclined to chalk up the tax fiasco to a bookkeeping error. Not to mention, someone like Gabriel would have had a solid financial stream. His estate was valued at more than $30 million. This included multiple homes across the U.S. and Mexico, and several bank accounts. That doesn't even include the money from royalties he earned every year. Which would mean that he had more than enough to cover any possible debt he may have accumulated, no matter who was asking for it. Exactly. It seems almost impossible that Juan Gabriel would need to, or even be capable of, faking his own death. He was a megastar, so where would he hide? And those closest to him have confirmed his death with official paperwork. The only ones propagating this theory are peripheral figures who are likely doing this to stay relevant or get attention. His manager, Joaquin Munoz, stopped working with Gabriel eight years before he died. And it's almost certain that Wanga never even met Carabajal. Considering all the evidence, I give this conspiracy theory a 2 out of 10. Juan Gabriel was certainly a complicated man, and one that few people truly got to know. Maybe it's just wishful thinking that he will one day grace us with his return. So I'm giving this theory a 2 out of 10 as well. Since his premature death, Juan Gabriel's son, Ivan, has triumphed in court, maintaining the bulk of his father's estate for both him and his siblings. But knowing what we do know now, it's unlikely that this will be the last we hear of the matter. Ultimately, Juan Gabriel should not be remembered for the drama that occurred after his death. Instead, it's important to remember the man who chose to stay true to his roots 
who genuinely cared about the people of Mexico and his fans. Because if there's one thing Wanga should be celebrated for, it's for being unapologetically himself. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a second episode in honor of Cinco de Mayo, this time about the disappearance of singer Luis Miguel's mother. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Tony Goodman, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Ali Wicker, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Anna Paula Shelley and Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 